Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drug abuse, sexual abuse of minors, harm against minors, mutilation, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. We like to think that kids aren't capable of committing horrible acts, but there are exceptions to every rule. The story you're about to hear is as heart-wrenching as it is horrifying. It involves children hurting other children. When events like this occur, it captivates our attention because it just feels so unusual. So much so that we want to poke and prod and pretend like it's something incomprehensible. The sad truth is, most times there is an explanation. All we have to do is look. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This week, we'll meet Mary Bell, a young girl who was used and abused by her mother. We'll learn how years of trauma warped her reality and made her believe violence was completely normal. Until one day, 11-year-old Mary claimed her first life. Next week, we'll follow Mary as her victim count rises. Then we'll dive into her sensational trial and how she continued to cause uproar across England for years to come. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. To understand Mary Bell's story, we need to go back to the year 1956, when her mother, Betty McCricket, first learned she was expecting. Under normal circumstances, this might have been a joyous occasion. For 16-year-old Betty, it was a problem. She'd been raised a strict Catholic, and she'd broken one of the biggest rules, don't have sex before you're married, and definitely don't get pregnant. 
Betty had been a good girl for most of her life. She was devout, drawing religious pictures and hanging rosaries everywhere. Her mom, who we'll call Mrs. McCricket, even joked that Betty might be a nun someday. Then Betty's father died unexpectedly, and she didn't know how to cope. All of a sudden, she started lashing out. No longer the perfect child, she broke curfew, took drugs, and ultimately got pregnant. When Betty told her mom about her situation, Mrs. McCricket was beside herself. She asked who the father was, but Betty wouldn't say. She either didn't know or didn't want to admit to it. Whatever the case, she simply resorted to calling him the devil. To hide the pregnancy from prying eyes, Mrs. McCricket sent Betty away from her home in Newcastle, England, to a convent. She stayed there until the spring of 1957, when she gave birth to a healthy baby girl, Mary. Again, this wasn't something Betty celebrated. She resented her daughter and didn't exactly take to motherhood. In fact, when a nurse first handed the baby to her mother, Betty recoiled and shrieked, get that thing away from me. Fortunately, the young mother had a close-knit family to lean on. When Betty and her baby returned home, her mother and younger sister, Isa, were more than happy to lend a hand. And for a few brief months, the McCrickets got used to a new way of life. That was until Betty met Billy Bell. He was a petty criminal who liked to drink, but Betty was too smitten to mind. Just weeks after they got together, she was pregnant again. And this time, she wouldn't have to go through it alone. So in March of 1958, 18-year-old Betty married 21-year-old Billy. Months later, she gave birth to their son, Peter. The couple lived with Betty's family for a short while before Mrs. McCricket moved to Glasgow, about 150 miles away. Betty and Billy stayed in Newcastle with the kids. But as the Bells embarked on life on their own, the problems started to pile up. One of the biggest issues was that Betty didn't want to look after the children. This left Billy to do most of the work. And sure, he was a little annoyed, but it was hard for him to complain. He loved the kids and had a soft spot for his adopted daughter. And as far as Mary knew, Billy was her real dad. At some point, she even legally took his last name. Now, we can't say for certain, but it's possible the attention Billy gave Mary made Betty jealous. Because within a few months, the young mother not only resented her daughter, she wanted her completely out of the picture. In late 1958, Betty took the one-year-old to visit Mrs. McCricket in Glasgow. It's not clear if Betty had a plan ahead of time or if she made a spur-of-the-moment decision. But at some point during the trip, Betty fed Mary some migraine pills. Then she left the toddler alone and waited for the drugs to take effect. Fortunately, before that could happen, Mrs. McCricket found Mary on the floor with some of the capsules. When she turned to her daughter for an explanation, Betty feigned innocence. She suggested that Mary must have gotten into them herself. Mrs. McCricket found the idea absurd. She kept her medicine far out of reach. To get them, the baby would have had to scale a chest, open up an old gramophone needle compartment, and somehow manage to get the bottle from its hiding place. 
Of course, accusing Betty of trying to kill her own daughter was equally absurd. So, Mrs. McCricket chose to believe that it was all a terrible accident and rushed her granddaughter to the hospital. As doctors worked quickly to pump Mary's stomach and save her life, Betty watched from the sidelines. Now, we can only imagine what she must have been feeling at this moment. Even if people weren't thinking she was the one who gave Mary the pills, she was the mother who left her child unsupervised. There was a good chance that she'd be judged and criticized. But to her surprise, Betty received sympathy. Doctors and nurses approached the concerned mother, asking all types of questions and offering words of comfort. All in all, everyone was kind to her, and all that attention felt good. For the past few years, Betty had been criticized and overlooked, but now people seemed to genuinely care about her. They wanted to know how she was doing. And so, as she welcomed every kind word, an idea slowly dawned on her. If Mary remained sick, Betty could continue to play the part of concerned parent. People would see her as a devoted mother, and she'd continue to get all sorts of attention. She'd be seen as a hero, instead of a woman exhibiting symptoms of a very serious mental disorder. Before we continue with the psychology for this episode, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. According to experts, it seems Betty lived with factitious disorder imposed on another, or FDIA. Sometimes referred to as Munchausen by proxy, FDIA is a mental illness where a caregiver, usually a mother, intentionally harms their child to get attention for themselves. What exactly triggers the condition is highly debated, but Dr. Mark Feldman, a leading expert on FDIA, says that people with the disorder typically have a long-time pattern of using maladaptive methods to meet their needs. The effects on victims of FDIA are even less understood. That said, according to clinical psychologist Kimberly Glazier, there are a few recurring symptoms. FDIA victims tend to experience things like severe withdrawal and fixation with bodily integrity, and they often lash out in aggression. Unfortunately, that's exactly what happened with Mary. Although she made a full physical recovery, it appears she was mentally affected by her mother's FDIA. Around this time, family members described the toddler as growing cold, detached, and withdrawn. She was even violent, sometimes hitting them. Of course, no one thought too much of it at the time. Mary was still a child after all. She didn't understand the difference between right or wrong. But what the family assumed was simply odd behavior turned out to be much more sinister. In 1960, Betty's older sister, Kath, made a visit to Newcastle. She wanted to see how Betty was holding up and even brought treats for her niece and nephew. Unsurprisingly, when Kath gave three-year-old Mary and her brother some candies, the children were beyond ecstatic. They sprawled out in the living room and started popping the sweets into their mouths. And sure, an excess of sugar could have led to a whole bunch of problems, like a sudden rush of energy with a drastic come down or an annoying toothache that might have sent them to the dentist. But no, on that day, the problem was that some of Betty's pills got into the mix. 
While Kath and Betty made tea in the kitchen, Mary and Peter swallowed some of their mother's Drynamils, a stimulant drug that came in a little blue capsule. At some point, Kath went into the living room to check on the kids. Her eyes fell on the mixture of candies and drugs on the floor, and she knew Mary and Peter were in trouble. Thinking quick, Kath raced into the kitchen, rushed back with a glass of salt water, and forced the kids to drink it all down. Fortunately, it did the trick. Mary and Peter started vomiting into the sink, purging the pills from their systems. As a swirly mixture went down the drain, Betty stood back, pretending to make sense of it all. She swore the kids must have snuck the medication from her purse. Kath wanted to believe her sister, but the whole thing was suspect, to say the least. Even after taking the kids to the hospital and having the doctors clear them, Kath couldn't shake the feeling that something bad might happen to her niece and nephew. Sure enough, 20-year-old Betty struck again. Later that year, she took three-year-old Mary on a trip to visit Mrs. McCricket in Glasgow. Betty's younger siblings, Philip and Isa, were also there, visiting their mom. The family was having a good time until one afternoon, when Betty let Mary splash around in the kitchen sink. Though Betty supervised her child, the window behind the sink was wide open. It was a precarious place to entertain a toddler, but even Philip and Isa sitting nearby said nothing. That's when Mary either fell or Betty purposefully let go of her. Thankfully, Philip saw his niece falling out the window and lunged for the toddler. In a flash, he grabbed hold of her ankle and pulled her back inside the kitchen. And while Philip was left with an annoying back strain, Mary was completely unscathed. After Philip put Mary safely back on the ground, he turned to Betty enraged. He couldn't understand how his sister could be so careless. Isa and Mrs. McCricket were just as shocked. As much as they didn't want to believe it, they worried she'd hurt Mary again. They had no idea how right they were. Up next, Betty tries to get rid of Mary once and for all. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. 
1960, 20-year-old Betty Bell attempted to hurt her daughter, 3-year-old Mary Bell, for a third time. Betty's mother and siblings were concerned, and they started keeping a close eye on her. But Betty didn't take kindly to all the criticism. Frankly, she was tired of her family judging her. She'd never wanted Mary in the first place. In her mind, they'd been the ones who made her keep the child. If Mary wasn't around, things would be so much better. That's when a new idea popped into her head. While still in Glasgow, Betty snuck away with the toddler and made her way to an adoption agency. There, mother and daughter waited in the lobby. All of a sudden, a woman we'll call Danielle burst out of a room in tears. She'd just learned she wouldn't be getting a child and she was devastated. Betty saw this as the perfect opportunity to wash her hands of Mary. Without even asking about what the agency's reasons were, she offered up her daughter to Danielle right there on the spot. Danielle couldn't believe her luck. All she'd ever wanted was a child of her own. So she jumped at the chance. She happily embraced little Mary as Betty turned around and walked out of the building. Now, if Betty had her way, this would have been the end of their story together. But unbeknownst to Betty, her younger sister Isa had tailed her to the adoption agency. In fact, she'd witnessed the whole exchange from afar and couldn't believe her eyes. To make sure her niece was safe, she followed Mary all the way back to Danielle's house and took down the address. Then she rushed home to tell her mother. Needless to say, when Mrs. McCricket heard the news, she was furious. She confronted Betty with a clear ultimatum. Either she got Mary back immediately, or Mrs. McCricket would call the police. The last thing Betty wanted was for the cops to get involved, so she trudged down to the address and convinced Danielle to give Mary back. Isa and Mrs. McCricket thought they were doing the right thing. Mary should be with her family, not some stranger. In reality, Mary had enjoyed her time with Danielle. The enthusiastic mother had been kind and doting. She even bought Mary a few dresses. Perhaps if Mary had been allowed to stay with someone who wanted her, things may have turned out differently. Instead, Mary was brought back home, where the abuse only continued. The following year, in 1961, while four-year-old Mary rode her tricycle outside, Betty gave her daughter some sweets. The next thing Mary knew, she was waking up in the hospital after getting her stomach pumped. This time, she was finally old enough to speak up. When the doctors asked if she'd eaten anything strange, she said her mother had given her some pills. Unfortunately, none of the hospital staff reported the incident. As far as we can tell, they either didn't believe Mary or they chose to let the family handle the situation, which they did. Over the next few days, Betty's family let the careless mother know just how furious they were. To them, there was no way that all of these near-death experiences could be accidents. But Betty refused to admit her guilt, and she was so offended by their accusations that she wrote to her family and said that she never wanted to see them again. For whatever reason, they didn't fight her. 
they let her take Mary again. To make matters worse, Mary's stepfather was hardly around anymore. While Billy Bell had been a doting father, it seems he was always on his way to or from prison. And when he was free, he didn't want to be around his wife, Betty. At some point, he learned that she'd been seeing other men while he was locked up. And soon, those affairs turned into her new profession. Betty likely got the idea of sex work from the other neighborhood women who were doing the same thing. And since it brought in a lot more money than her factory job, she followed their lead. She usually did this work in Glasgow. It had a larger population, which meant more clients. But one day in 1961, 21-year-old Betty brought a John home. That's when four-year-old Mary stumbled into the living room and found her mother with the landlord in a compromising position. When the landlord saw Mary, he quickly pulled up his pants and fled the scene. Betty, however, flew into a rage. She made a beeline for Mary and started hitting and screaming at her. Then she grabbed her daughter by the hair and dragged her from the room. Not long after this incident, Betty forced her four-year-old back into the living room. Only they weren't alone. This time, there was another man with them, a stranger who Mary didn't know. At first, Mary was told to sit quietly and wait while Betty and the man had sex. Then, Betty pulled Mary into it. She stood over her daughter, sexually abused her with the man. When it was over, Mary threw up. According to her, she felt as if she'd been bad and that this was her punishment. It almost felt like she deserved this type of treatment. But her mom seemed to think otherwise. After the sexual assault, Betty stroked Mary's hair and told her she was a good girl. Sadly, this wasn't a one-time occurrence. Betty forced Mary into a string of sexual acts with different men. Usually, these assaults took place in their own living room. Occasionally, though, Betty brought Mary to the clients. Sometimes, Betty would pick Mary up in the middle of the assaults and spin her around, twirling and laughing. Other times, while a man assaulted Mary, Betty would half choke her. Afterward, Betty was always kinder to her daughter. She'd give Mary sweets or potato chips, and she stopped calling her names and hurting her. Of course, this never lasted long. Betty abused Mary in more ways than one, and she threatened to lock Mary away if she told anyone about the assaults. Like most four-year-olds, Mary believed her mother. She was so scared that even when her mother was away and she was alone with Billy, she didn't say a word to him. He had no idea what was going on. And so, the torture continued. Unsurprisingly, the echoes of abuse followed Mary wherever she went. In the fall of 1961, when the five-year-old started kindergarten, Teachers noted that she exhibited some strange behavior. It started out small. She'd hide under desks and refuse to come out. Or she'd yank hairs out of people's legs for attention. She also kicked and nipped at other kids. 
Then one day, Mary squeezed her hands tightly around a classmate's throat, just like Betty sometimes did to her. According to researcher Yvonne Rafferty, children who are abused in one way tend to demonstrate that same type of behavior on their own. For Mary, who was choked and beaten at home, it makes sense that she would try out those same actions at school. Additionally, Rafferty notes, children who were physically or sexually abused experience emotional problems and difficulties relating to their peers, as well as being at risk for violence and antisocial behavior. Unfortunately, it seems Mary's teachers weren't aware of the psychology behind her outbursts. They just saw her as a troublemaker. So instead of providing her with proper treatment, they ignored her bids for connection. And with no real help, Mary kept lashing out. She continued bullying the other kids until no one wanted to be around her, and she was left all on her own. Yet deep down, this wasn't what Mary wanted. She didn't want to be alone, suffering in secret. She desperately needed someone to pay attention to her. And one way or another, she was going to find someone who did. One day in 1963, seven-year-old Mary went to see their middle-aged neighbor, Harry Burry. Harry was a friend of her dad's, so when she knocked and got no answer, she simply let herself in. She found Harry asleep in a chair with a drink in his hand. There were a million things an unsupervised child could have chosen to do in this situation. And Mary decided on something very bizarre. She marched over to Harry, unbuttoned his pants, and took out his penis. Now, it's a matter of debate why Mary did this. Betty's abuse had certainly conditioned Mary to normalize this type of behavior. It could have been that she believed Harry would want this from her. It's also possible Mary was testing him. In any case, she got his attention. Harry startled awake, shocked to see her there, and himself exposed. He shouted at her, wondering what on earth she was doing. Mary didn't jump or recoil, she simply smiled. That was the exact reaction she'd hoped for. As Mary backed away, Harry calmed down. He chalked the whole thing up to a troubled kid who didn't know any better. And instead of reprimanding her, he made her a cup of tea. Like her teachers, Harry didn't see Mary's actions as a cry for help. He had no idea of the trauma she had endured at her mother's hands. He just thought she was confused. He figured it was good for her to get out of the house. So after that day, he welcomed Mary around whenever she wanted. But while Harry didn't step in and actually help Mary, it seems he did change her life forever. After this incident, the young girl realized that not all adults were terrible. It was possible for her to speak up and act out and not face any repercussions. With that, Mary grew in confidence and started standing up to Betty. She told her mother she wouldn't participate in any more of her sex work. We don't know exactly how Betty responded to the defiance, but it seemed to work. Betty didn't force Mary into anything after that. Still, though she had more confidence than before, Mary was incredibly lonely. She didn't have any school friends, her mom was horrible to her, and her father was never around. 
But even Mary's brother, six-year-old Peter, didn't want to hang out with her. The only times he'd ever play with her was when she'd paid him to do so. The eight-year-old wasn't exactly rolling in cash, so she had to find a way to get her hands on some money. Her solution was to fall back on the only thing she knew, sex work. She began getting into cars with strange men and waited for them to undo their pants. She'd start to perform a sexual act and then abruptly stop. She'd threaten that her dad was down the street and if they didn't pay up, she'd tell him what they'd done. Unsurprisingly, the men all handed over the coin. According to researcher Yvonne Rafferty, children who have been sexually exploited for money are at serious risk of turning to sex work in their own lives. This can be because they feel worthless, that their lives have been spoiled, or that they have nothing left to lose. Psychologist Kathy Widow and sociologist Helena White doubled down on this point. Their 1997 study found that Abused and neglected children are at an increased risk for arrests for violent crimes and had higher rates of delinquency complaints. It seemed Mary was simply following the trends. Only, Mary didn't view sex work the same way her mother did. For starters, she wasn't exactly relying on it to make a living. Instead, the eight-year-old saw it as her chance to go from helpless victim to a leading lady who could get revenge on some very bad men. Around this time, Mary found her voice in other ways. She became defiant and anti-authority, always trying to see what she could get away with. Because the truth was, deep down, Mary was angry, and all that pent-up rage was about to boil over. Up next, Mary meets her partner in crime. Now, back to the story. By the time she was eight, Mary Bell had survived years of sexual and physical abuse. Her experiences led her to believe the worst in the world, but she soon realized she didn't have to be the victim anymore. She could be the abuser. And in 1967, she realized she didn't have to do it alone. That year, Mary's mother, 25-year-old Betty, moved the family to a better side of town in a more respectable neighborhood. By that stage, Betty was going to Glasgow for all her work, leaving nine-year-old Mary behind for days at a time. With her newfound freedom, the first thing on Mary's agenda was to make friends. She didn't want to fly solo anymore. And lucky for her, the family right next door, who we'll call the Dunlops, had 11 kids. A quick side note, we've changed the names of the children in this story to protect their privacy. At first, Mary tried hanging out with Susan Dunlop. They were the same age, but they couldn't be more different. Mary considered herself a dare-me child who was always trying to see what she could get away with. Susan, on the other hand, was a goody two-shoes. Eventually, Mary ditched Susan and moved on to her older sister, an 11-year-old we'll call Sherry. Like Mary, Sherry felt overlooked. She was constantly forgotten in the chaos and commotion of her household, so much so that she'd even run away on occasion. She also shared Mary's love for trouble. Even before meeting Mary, Sherry had gotten into fights with the other kids at school. 
Needless to say, the two became fast friends. And despite the age difference, Sherry was more than willing to play the role of sidekick. She went wherever Mary was and did just as she said. And the two girls loved to egg each other on. Wherever they were, the pattern would go something like this. Sherry would spot an opportunity to do something fun, or more often than not, a little dangerous. Like one day when she saw some exposed pipes on the side of a bridge and dared Mary to walk across them. Never mind the fact that if she fell, she'd probably plunge to her death in the ravine below. Nine-year-old Mary was never one to back down, and she walked across the pipes. Sherry didn't want to be called chicken, so she followed in her young friend's footsteps. According to psychologist Dr. Lawrence Steinberg, there's a biological reason for kids being susceptible to dares. That's because the body goes through a lot of changes during puberty. The brain, for instance, produces a lot more dopamine. That's the neurotransmitter that increases when the brain's reward system is triggered. Basically, it's what makes you feel good. And so with this influx of dopamine, kids have a hyperactive reward center. At the same time, their brains haven't fully developed a self-regulation system. So kids are constantly looking for the things that feel good and don't put much thought into the consequences. And one of the strongest rewards during childhood is peer approval. In Mary's case, she wanted Sherry to like her. She was so desperate for that approval, she overlooked all the potential risks of her actions, even when it meant hurting someone else. Which is exactly what happened on May 11, 1968. That day, 10-year-old Mary and 13-year-old Sherry thought it'd be a good idea to break into the local factory they had no real plan beyond that. They just figured it'd be fun. The thing is, they weren't alone. Mary's cousin, three-year-old Jack, followed inside after them. Mary didn't want some toddler hanging around, so she told him to go away. When he didn't listen, Mary got annoyed and gave him a little shove. He stumbled and fell down a small incline. Mary assumed that would be enough to lose him, but Jack got back to his feet and waddled after the girls. Mary gave him one more warning, threatened to push him again, and when he still didn't leave them alone, she grabbed him and dropped him over a ledge. Mary later claimed that there was barely a drop and that Jack could practically stand when she let go of him. To hear her tell it, she wasn't even trying to hurt him. But Jack did get hurt. He hit his head in the fall and started sobbing uncontrollably. To Mary and Sherry, the wound on Jack's head didn't seem like anything major. Even still, they headed back home. Along the way, it seems the girls must have threatened Jack to keep quiet, because even once his parents called the police, the boy was too scared to tell them the truth. He simply said he'd been pushed down an embankment and didn't know who his assailant had been. The authorities questioned Mary and Sherry, but no one really suspected them of any wrongdoing. With no other leads or clear motives, the cops ended up writing the whole thing off as an accident. Unfortunately, that taught Mary a powerful lesson. As far as she could tell, there were no real consequences for bad behavior. She could do whatever she wanted, hurt 
whoever she wanted. The following day, Mary and Sherry saw three girls playing in a sandpit. They stopped and demanded the girls get out of the sandbox. When they didn't, Mary attacked. She choked each of them while Sherry stood off to the side and watched. When the police were called in later, Mary claimed that she had no idea what the girls were talking about. There were no marks that proved Mary had hurt anyone, and none of the parents wanted to deal with the trouble of going to court. So Mary and Sherry got off scot-free. Once again, the idea that she could get away with anything was reinforced. Mary likely felt reassured and even empowered. After being someone else's punching bag for so long, it must have felt good to assert some control. Less than two weeks later, on May 25, 1968, Mary really put this theory to the test. It was the day before Mary's 11th birthday, and per usual, she was left on her own. She aimlessly wandered the streets, looking for something to do. Eventually, she spotted an abandoned building and went inside to explore. Meanwhile, four-year-old Martin Brown had been playing nearby and saw Mary go into the house. Curious, he plodded along after her. When Mary first spotted Martin, she told him to go home. But just like Jack, he didn't listen to her. Frustrated, she grabbed the boy so forcefully that he cried. Then she let go and warned him to leave for a second time. But despite all the tears, Martin didn't run away or shout for help. He didn't seem scared at all. He just waited to see what she'd do next. At that moment, something happened to Mary. Years later, she described it as a void washing over her. She wasn't angry or excited. There was no emotion whatsoever in her actions. She simply told Martin to put his hands around her throat. He did as she said, probably thinking it was some sort of game. She put her own hands around his throat too. And then she pressed down and she didn't let go. In a matter of minutes, Martin was dead. Afterwards, when Mary stepped away and took in the scene, she got excited. She'd never seen a dead body up close before, and she couldn't wait to tell her best friend about it. Mary raced to Sherry's house. As expected, Sherry was fascinated by Mary's tale. She wanted to see the body for herself. But by the time the girls made their way back to the abandoned house, it was too late. Three schoolboys had already stumbled upon Martin's body and notified the authorities. The police were dumbfounded by Martin's death. There were no visible wounds, no signs of foul play, and seemingly no motive. It was a total mystery. So they declared his death an accident. But Mary and Sherry knew the truth. Four days after his murder, Sherry dared Mary to ask Martin's mother, June Brown, to see him in his coffin. It was a twisted challenge, but Mary never backed down from a dare. Besides, Mary had her own reason for visiting Martin's house, too. According to her, she wanted to see if he was still alive. 
Even then, Mary didn't quite grasp the finality of death. She didn't think it was a game per se, but there was a part of her that thought Martin would be back one day. According to researcher Mark Spies, a child has to come to terms with four components of death to fully understand the concept. First, there's universality, or the idea that everyone will eventually die. Second is irreversibility, that dead things remain that way forever. Third is non-functionality, which means that once a body is dead, it can no longer do the things a normal body can do, like move, feel, or think. And fourth, there's causality. This final notion is the most vague, but it's the idea that there's an understanding of what might realistically cause an individual's death. Before grasping this concept, a child might believe that bad behavior could cause death. Most kids master these four elements by the age of seven. That said, research shows that children can reach a mature understanding of death anywhere between four and 12 years old. 11-year-old Mary was at the older end of that range. However, she was still young enough for death to be a foreign concept. And because Mary didn't think Martin was really gone forever, she was a bit aloof about the whole thing. She went ahead with the dare and asked June Brown if she could see her son's body. The grieving mother told her no, but said she could attend his funeral. The ceremony was still a few days away, and in the meantime, Mary and Sherry continued to cause trouble. The girls broke into a nearby school and vandalized it. They trashed the place and left four notes behind. Two of them were filled with profanity, the other two were more ominous. The first read, we did murder Martin Brown. The second said, I murder so that I may come back. The girls found the whole thing very funny. In Mary's own words, it was all just for a giggle. But subconsciously, it seemed like Mary was trying to get caught. She was shouting her guilt from the rooftops. Maybe because, just maybe, if someone noticed her, she'd get the help she needed. Of course, that didn't happen. The cops still believed Martin's death had been some kind of accident, and then decided that the vandalism was the work of some kid with poor taste. And that meant no one would stop Mary from striking again. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two, when Mary claims another victim and people finally take notice. For more information on Mary Bell, amongst the many sources we used, we found Cries Unheard by Gita Serini, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. 
This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Jane O. and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 